Welcome to Dog Training Disrupted by Upward Dogology, where I retrain your brain and introduce you to the world of cognitive behavioral therapy for dogs over the age of six months. When things are not going so well, it is common to try and find solutions. When industry experts are not providing these solutions, people search for these solutions themselves, and that's how they find me. Prior to finding me, my clients have tried everything. I hear this all the time. We've tried everything from gadgets to increasing rules and restrictions to changing their life to adapt to their dog, and they've hired different trainers. Are you frantically trying to fix individual problems using multiple gadgets and techniques? Are you changing your lifestyle to accommodate your dog? In this episode, I talk about common paths and directions dog owners and trainers take when feeling as though they are not quite reaching their goals and how these can affect the ability to bond and communicate with their dogs. Hello, I'm Billy Grimm, your host and successful dogologist for over three decades and expert in canine cognitive behavioral therapy. Quick reminder that the information in this episode and all the episodes are in relation to dogs over the age of six months. So let's start with gadgets. There's tons of non-harmful gadgets that are effective. Well, let's take the slow food bowl, for example. This product works like a dream, commonly, not all the time. But it can be very successful in slowing down the pace that a dog eats. But it does not address the reason for the quaffing, which is commonly anxiety. So we need to address that instead of relying on the slow food bowl. Crates. Crates can be a safe and easy solution to prevent chewing, messing, behaviors associated with separation anxiety. If the crate is being used as a solution to stop behaviors stemming from anxiety, we need to address the anxiety. It doesn't mean that we can't use the crate in the meantime, but we need to really focus on the reason for those behaviors. If the dog is not used to a crate, then getting them to like the crate can increase the anxiety. There are ways of working through anxiety without having to crate. If the crate is being used as an across-the-board rule, well, if the dog likes the crate, fine. But if not, we could be making our life more difficult than it needs to be. Why force crate training? If it's used to prevent unwanted behavior, We just need to teach right from wrong. And again, we can use the crate as an in-between if the dog likes the crate. The point is to not rely on these tools to fix individual problems. Let's talk about walking tools. There are literally hundreds of options of harnesses and collars. These cause a great amount of debate among trainers and experts as to which ones are aversive and which ones are not aversive. The important point is for the dog to like the walking tool not debate or decide upon which one is best. The dog can make that decision. The dog should like it, and it should not be doing all the work. What I mean by that is if the walking tool is stopping the pulling or the reactivity, but we're not using the dog's brain, and we're not changing the dog's perception of the need to do that behavior, then we're relying too much on that tool, and again, we're individualizing our problems. Often when I begin working with my client, they're using tools. I don't tell them not to, but as we work with the dog holistically, they learn that they don't don't really need to use that tool in order to have a calm, 
walk. When gadgets that are non-aversive and conventional techniques are proving limiting or not meeting people's needs, this can cause people to resort to tools or gadgets that are aversive. It's natural to want to find a tool that fixes a problem. Remember, as discussed in Season 1, conditioning methodologies are designed to be reactive in nature. And often this justifies tools that correct unwanted behavior, even if they are aversive. Preaching to my clients to not use an aversive tool is not the answer. I need to provide them with the skills that allow them to make that decision. Aversive tools are often portrayed as non-aversive by claiming it doesn't harm the dog, like a low-level shock or noise, such as with the anti-bark collar. This is a reaction the dog does not like in order to discourage the barking. That is the intention of it. So if the dog likes it, it wouldn't be effective. Certifications for trainers using these types of tools are designed to ensure that they use them properly. And this would be, uh, an example would be the e-collar. It doesn't take away from the fact that the dog does not like it, that it's intended to discourage the behavior These tools rely on the dog not liking it, and these reactive corrections can harm the dog. They can confuse the dog and scare the dog. We need to address the reason why they feel the need to do that behavior, not focus on the behavior. If a dog does not like a walking tool, we should not use it. It's not a matter of winning a battle or getting a dog to like a tool, even if it's considered non-aversive. The goal is to find a walking tool the dog likes that allows us to apply techniques taught at easier times. The tool should not be doing all the work. And even if it seems like it's a magical answer, if we're relying on the tool, we're not bonding. We're not communicating with our dog. We're not reaching that brain that allows them to decide and to learn and to change their perception. Another common direction people take when they feel they are lacking control or unable to find success is to create rules and implement restrictions. They feel they need, for example, to make boundaries. This is a mindset in a generic term that indicates a lack of ability to provide guidance and direction. Taking away a tug toy or that all dogs must be crated or all dogs must sit before getting a treat or you must eat before your dog eats or a dog must walk on the left side You should never go through a door first or no dogs on the couch. These are all rules that if if you want them, you should be able to teach them calmly and clearly if that's your house rule, but it should be the choice. They shouldn't be implemented as a way to fix behavior. They're also not fun. People don't want to not play tug toy. They want to have the dog be part of the family and do fun activities with them. Adolescent and adult dogs and dogs with unconventional or checkered pasts don't need to abide by the same rules or have the same boundaries as puppies. As with children, dogs' brains develop and they begin to use their cognitive skills, and this is comparable to children turning from three-year-olds to four-year-olds, which I talk about in another episode. We need to provide guidance and direction, not increase rules and restrictions. This can be challenging without harnessing the cognitive skills and recognizing their individual personalities. It's also common to implement structure and routine when people are feeling out of control. This is a tough go because urban families don't often have structure and routine. And we can't expect the routine of an adopter to be the same to that of a foster. They might not walk the same route or at the same time of day or feed the dog at the same time. This is why upper dogology 
establishes transferable skills. People also find themselves changing their life to adapt to their dog's behavior. They live with their curtains closed or they never have guests over. This isn't fun. Dog owners are being saturated with suggestions that are non-harmful but make no sense to the dog and people find them restrictive. I'm going to use one example of literally hundreds. Dividing walks. So part of the walk is a decompression or maybe a certain walk is a decompression walk versus a training walk versus a casual stroll. Dogs don't learn this way. It's tough to say in this five minutes, you can do what you want to do, but in this five minutes, you need to listen. Or a certain block on a walk. Again, we need transferable skills and we need skills that allow the dog to learn overall, holistically, throughout the entire walk. We shouldn't be viewing training as negative or mean or that we're only going to do it for five minutes. All walks are enjoyable. All walks are decompressing for the human and the dog. I love the idea of providing options, but providing options of turning left or right on a walk is not the same as providing options using the cognitive side of the brain. Another natural reaction when feeling ill-equipped or failing, and again, not just in the dog world, is to place blame. Trainers blame other trainers for not being qualified or experienced or certified, and a lot of these trainers are very good. People tend to blame owners or blame themselves or adopters for not having patience or compassion. My clients and the adopters I know have loads of patience and compassion. They need to see progress. They're looking for solutions. They don't care about certifications or science-based or terminology. They're not blaming trainers. They recognize that the fault lies with the method, and they're simply looking for an effective, non-aversive method. They need solutions. So by the time a dog owner contacts me, they have a closet full of gadgets and tools. They've changed their life entirely by having their curtains closed all the time. They're separating the cat. They're adjusting their eating schedule, only walking in the early morning and late evening, carrying a treat pouch and a clicker. They're instilling rules and enforcing restrictions they don't even want to enforce. They know all the trendy terminology, and that is confusing and overwhelming. So we need to clean house. We take a holistic approach. We take the focus off solving individual issues with different gadgets and advice, and we address the reason for the behavior. I wonder how many dogs are not given the opportunity to be exposed to canine cognitive behavioral therapy. This is not the fault of the dog owners or the trainers, but that of the industry. Masking the problem by providing makeshift solutions is unacceptable. Hundreds of dogs are being euthanized and surrendered because good dog owners feel they have tried everything. Be a voice. Please reach out to the industry expert you expect to provide you with the most innovative solutions and advice. Ask them why they're not listening to this podcast. I love canine CBT because dogs love it. My clients are always commenting on how freeing it is, how it has so few rules and yet allows for so much calm manageability. One of my clients said it perfectly. She said, I feel less controlling, yet I have more control. We need to stop the insanity of our reliance on reinforcements and gadgets and rules. Another client said, quote, it is not simplistic, yet upward dogology is so simple. True, the psychology behind it is technical, but the application in the process is made easy. The upward dogology formula allows us to take a holistic approach Increase the bond, establish communication, 
allows for proactive prevention, and creates platform skills that harness the cognitive side of the brain. Dogs view us differently, and they relate to us. We need to provide dogs with a reason to connect with us. We need to respect their individuality. All of these mindsets are emerging amongst trainers and industry experts, yet their reliance on conditioning methods prohibit them from fully being able to reach this level with dogs. And I'm the kind of girl can roll like a guy, but I really don't know. If you're ready for the ride, I'm Thank you so much for your support and a big shout out to the Jeff Murdoch Band and Danielle Borgiord for the music. You can find their links in the show notes as well as links to my Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter accounts. Please email me at billy at upperdogology.com with any questions and please leave a rating and review and share this episode if you've enjoyed it. Please check out the other episodes and all the guests that we have on this podcast. Enjoy your learning journey.